Hi, I'm Jenny, the host of It's Murder Up North. If you're curious about the murderous north of England, this podcast is definitely for you. I've lived in various parts of the north of England. I went to college in the shadow of Saddleworth Moor, where Myra Hindley and Ian Brady buried those five innocent children. I've worked in the city of Leeds, where the Yorkshire Ripper targeted his victims in the 1970s. Knowing how geographically close I have been to these crimes made me curious, and that curiosity became this podcast. However, my main hope is to help you see the person, not the victim. This is True Consequences, a true crime and mystery podcast with stories based in New Mexico in the American Desert Southwest. If you enjoy listening to this show, please rate, subscribe, and review on your favorite podcatcher. True Consequences is fully listener-supported. To support this show, go to patreon.com slash trueconsequences. To keep up with all my updates, you can follow me on Facebook and Instagram at trueconsequencespod and on Twitter at trueconspod. I want to give a special shout out today to Ashley for your donation, as well as Heather C., who's become my latest patron subscriber. Your support ensures that I can continue to provide content for you. Thank you so much. It means the world to me. I've never been that interested in what I would consider history. When I think of history, I think of long, boring books about the past. Now, I know some people love it, and I'm not mad about that. I just never really felt like it was accessible to me in a way that made sense. Until my sophomore year of high school, and I had this amazing history teacher. He actually made it interesting and fun. He made me want to learn about all these crazy things that happened. He treated everything like a story. And he was a master storyteller. With him, history wasn't very far off, and it wasn't inaccessible. I guess this is the value of a great teacher. Speaking of, if you haven't thanked a teacher for what they do, you should. They work really hard, and they're not appreciated enough. Oh, and while you're at it, go ahead and thank all the first responders and healthcare workers. Okay, back to this. When Lydia suggested that we cover spies in New Mexico, I was intrigued. I started my own research into this case as Lydia worked on hers. We dug deep and learned about a piece of New Mexican history that is fascinating and bizarre. All you history buffs may scoff at this, but my understanding of Soviet espionage in New Mexico was virtually non-existent. I'm grateful to Lydia for recommending this as an episode because I learned a lot, and maybe I might be willing to admit to myself that I like history after all. Maybe. Today's case deals with a plot to steal nuclear secrets from the U.S. by the Soviet Union, and because this show is what it is, it will address these issues as they pertain to the beautiful state of New Mexico. I am Eric Carter-Londine, and this is True Consequences. Hey, Lydia. Hey, Eric. Welcome back. Thank you. Yeah, I'm glad to have you. I know that you've been excited about this particular story. I am. Um, And I honestly, I wasn't excited about it in the beginning when you brought it up because I I didn't understand. Uh, But as I started to do my own research, not that it's as extensive as your research, but as I, I did my own, I started to become more interested in this case. And also, I learned some things, which I'm kind of pissed off at you about. Because I hate learning things. <sighs> yeah. <laughs> You're such an American. But uh, history's never really been something that I've been into, I guess. Uh, Maybe you're more into history than you realize. I guess, well, I guess my show would be proof that I am yeah. kind of into history. But uh, for some reason, I, I, you know, I hear Cold War, I hear all this stuff, and I'm just like, ugh, boring. Don't care. But honestly, I did learn some things and i do feel like maybe i might be more into history than i thought like you said so so i know you wanted to talk about spies in new mexico yep spies secrets and lies and we're talking about a particular set of spies not not like we did with the cults where we had two different things we're going to talk about one particular thing right right during one particular part of 
U.S. history. And New Mexico history. And New Mexico history. Um, so let me ask you, Eric. Okay. What do these three things have in common? Okay. Trump. Okay. White Sands. Bumblebee. I'll tell you. Transformers. <laughs> Close. <laughs> <laughs> um, the answer is, the hint being our segment, Spies. Oh, I'm excited to see how that all connects. Good. Are you going to weave a thread through the story? I'm weaving a thread. <laughs> it's a magical blanket. <laughs> is it a COVID blanket? No, it's not a COVID blanket. Oh, thank God. Yeah, we don't right. want that. That's better, right? No to COVID. Say no. Just say no. Social distance, everybody. Let's break down those connections okay. of those um, words. Trump, random random words, right? Random words, right? Trump, White Sands, and Bumblebee. So the overarching connection is spies. Dun, dun, dun. New Mexico is home to a bunch of government agencies. Yeah. Um, like, what do we have? We have the Department of Energy here. Yeah. We have a bunch of research laboratories. We've got some Homeland uh, Defense stuff going on here. Yeah. With the research laboratories. We've yeah. got missile testing in several parts of the state, even close to where we grew up. Right. So on the other side, so we grew up in Socorro, mm-hmm. which is a small, teeny, tiny, teeny, tiny little town. Which translates to help. Help me. Get me out of here, you help, guys. Help, exclamation point. <laughs> uh, but behind the famous M Mountain in Socorro, they do lots of missile testing. And I don't know if you had this experience growing up there, but when I grew up there, my house would frequently shake from the sonic booms from yep. some of the missiles and some of the jets flying overhead and it would get really loud oh totally yeah yeah and the same people that um work on those explosions by a mountain also um handle our july 4th fireworks Which display is a pretty <laughs> it's awesome. a pretty legit display yeah yeah for socorro yeah or i think for like I, anywhere yeah it's a pretty legit display well it's like actual Bomb makers. <laughs> Making fireworks. It's we went cool. um, down there last July because um, it's around the same time as my eldest daughter's birthday. So we tell her, like, this is all for you. <laughs> um, it's very, like, ominous. Happy birthday. Yeah. <laughs> but it's I haven't been there in such a long time. And I still see, like, it's a total legit firework display. No, it is. And where else can you get Al Hurricane Jr.? Which, right. if you're not from New Mexico, Google it. Google Al Hurricane Senior. You're welcome. And then Google Al Hurricane Junior. And then also fireworks. Yes. And hot dogs and hamburgers and all that other stuff. And too. actually, really nice grassy knoll. Yeah. Oh. To grassy enjoy knoll. the fireworks. The tent golf course is very lovely. The duck pond. Yeah, it's really pretty. Anyway, nobody cares about that. Yes, They're but I do s- want people to check it out because it's a hidden gem of New Mexico. Your voice that- got really weird right there. Because <laughs> I get so flustered about I'm it. I'm so passionate about the fireworks, you guys. I think they're so cool. And the green chili cheese fries at El Camino. Oh, my God, you guys. If you ever go to Socorro, you have to go to El Camino. It is yes. the best New Mexican food ever. And if it's later in the evening, ask to be sat in the El Matador Lounge. In the lounge, you can have a beer. You can have a beer and green chili cheese fries. Mm-hmm. And the booths are like super old from like the 70s and the 60s. It's and It's really lost in time. It's totally. It's like yeah. a total pause in time. It's really cool. The only thing, the only complaint I have about the El Camino we are really going down a weird rabbit hole here, is the fact that they put fucking olives on everything. I love the olives. I hate the olives. I know, but I love them. Okay. Okay. We're not Italian and we're not Greek. So calm down. But olives are okay in my book. Well, I guess it's like a Spanish thing, right? Oh, yeah. I never thought about that connection. (gasps) (gasps) It's a whole new world. A new fantastic point of view. Just get on my carpet and go for a ride. I've got okay. a magic lamp for you. That's, those aren't the words. That's the worst. <laughs> Rendition. So we're not doing karaoke anytime okay. soon. All right, okay, bye. audience, let's get back on track. You're distracting us. Stop being so selfish and let us focus on what we need to tell you about spies in New Mexico. God, it's all about you. How dare you? God. Okay, 
So New Mexico is home to lots of government agencies. Yeah. Eric, I think you actually looked up how many people are actually employed by either the state or the government. Yeah, 16% of New Mexicans are employed by the public sector. That's a huge amount of people. It is. Considering how few people live here. <laughs> <laughs> it's like 300,000 people. So that's, yeah, that's, that's a, a lot. lot. So there's a reason why so many people, I think, are clustered around New Mexico or government agencies, I should say. And that kind of goes back to World War II. Okay. So even before the U.S. got involved in the World War, a gentleman by the name of Oppenheimer was tasked at developing nuclear weapons. And he had been um, familiar with New Mexico, which I'll talk about a little bit. And he was tasked with developing an atomic weapon that would hopefully end the war. So when we say atomic weapons, that's kind of a broad term. Um, Basically, we're talking about an A-bomb. So the A-bomb was used um, to drop on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. It's like basically Um, generation one of nuclear weapons, right? Yeah. I'm saying right, and yeah, like I totally know about nuclear oh, weapon development. Oh, let me break down the science for you. <laughs> okay, right thank now. you. Mansplain it to me. Let me just actually and take up a bunch of space on the seat that we're sharing. <laughs> actually, what it's called is no. Just <laughs> so the um, people kind of responsible of navigating where America was going to go with World War II, they had a choice whether to look at a land invasion of allied countries. So allied countries being like Japan or look at a firebombing campaign. So basically flying over and dropping arsenal. So obviously they decided to lean towards typically firebombing. So essentially what happened is they dropped bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki in 1945, and that essentially devastated 67 Japanese cities, resulting in approximately 225,000 deaths. Devastating. Completely devastating. I mean, whether or not you're like, oh yeah, America, F yeah, whatever. I still think that like that's such a huge death toll. Like so many civilians were literally burned alive when mm-hmm. they dropped these weapons. And then whoever was left probably suffered a horrible long battle with cancer. Yep. Um the bombs were respectively named Fat Man and Little Boy. That sounds innocuous. Yeah. I don't know why they came up with those names. I'm sure there's a there's a a reason why those names were selected. They probably meant something. So going back to how these weapons came to be, we have to go back to what was known as the Manhattan Project. And the Manhattan Project was primarily housed and developed and nurtured in Los Alamos, New Mexico. So for those of my listeners that are not from New Mexico, let me just take a couple minutes and talk about Los Alamos. So Los Alamos is uh, right now a small city. I think... um, Maybe a few thousand people live there. It is right between Española and Santa Fe, New Mexico. And so it's in the north, I would say north central part of the state. Um, Very beautiful area. Uh, Los Alamos itself actually sits on top of a mesa, which is a flat hill type structure. And you can just see this beautiful canyon to the west. And then if you go east... There's a beautiful nature preserve called the Valles Caldera, which is an old uh, volcano that is inactive, gorgeous area, lots of wildlife, beautiful vegetation. Uh, have you ever been there? I believe I have driven through there. I don't believe I've ever stopped. It's like, really but I do pretty. remember it being like very forested and beautiful. It is, yeah. So Los Alamos itself is also very pretty, giant pine trees, but that's. The setting of where the development of the atomic bomb happened. And I think, if I'm not wrong, correct me if I'm wrong, that back then in the 40s, it was top secret. That, oh, yeah, totally. So you weren't even and really allowed. hard to get to. And that's why, you know, it was probably selected. Right. Because it is remote mm-hmm. and it is on top of a hill. So they could easily block off that entire area from, you know, access from people. Right. And I think they did that. I'm pretty sure there was like one way in, one way out. Yep. You know, there, there still like is. A, yeah, there's like a there was a gated area where people had to check in as they came in and check out as they left. Yeah. And, and even now it's still heavily involved in in the development of top secret technology and yeah top secret things related to military Um, we have that and we also have sandia national labs here in Mm -hmm. albuquerque which is very similar to that but i just wanted to give kind of a rundown on what los alamos is because not many people 
maybe don't know about it. Yeah. It's a small town. It's a very small town. Um, so as Eric pointed out, it's still relevant in today's kind of government agencies and government research. Um, and it is the highest income per capita in New Mexico, that that town. Yeah, there's a bunch of scientists who be making bank there. Smarty pants. <laughs> Smarty pants. Not us. Not, not me and Lydia. <laughs> no, we tried and they said no. <laughs> <laughs> They're like, go away. Who are you? <laughs> Do you have a degree in anything? <laughs> and we said laughter. Why are you grilling me? <laughs> You're not my mom. <laughs> you never will be. <laughs> All right. Okay, back to the story. Sorry. Back to the story of the bomb. Um, and not like a cheesy 1990s version. You of drop a bomb no, on me. No, that's the 70s. Baby. Um, so prior to, obviously, the final execution of this weapon, there had to be a testing phase. Sure. And that testing also occurred here in New Mexico. And that was done at the White Sands. <gasps> like dun, I said, dun, dun. what do these things have in common? White Sands Missile Range. It's also now known as a White Sands National Park. And um, the site is marked now formally as the Trinity Test Site. Okay, so first of all, if you're not from New Mexico, White Sands is amazing. It's gorgeous. Beautiful. So it's all of these really bright white sand dunes in the middle of like these giant mountains. And there's yuccas growing everywhere mm-hmm. and cactuses. And it's just so pretty there. It's really weird to think about the fact that that was like the site of some nuclear testing. And also, it's not very far from where we grew up. No, that's true. And I'm pretty sure Boys to Men shot a video there. So, oh, yeah, wasn't it um, End of the Road or something? <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Going down to the end of the It's possible. Road. Somebody shot a very well known music video at White Sands. It's absolutely gorgeous. I believe it's gypsum rock. It's that's gypsum, yeah. That's kind of eroded and it's this very fine sand. Mm-hmm. And it's actually illegal to take the sand. You yeah. need to get permission to transport any of the sand. Um, and like Eric said, it's just stark blue skies and a couple of yuccas spattered here and there. Um, absolutely gorgeous. So if anybody is looking for a road trip to New Mexico, check out White Sands. Um, it's worth it. Yeah, it's totally worth it. Especially like at night with the moon. Oh, uh, it's amazing. Yeah, you can even you can get permission to camp there. Word um, of caution. Don't go in July no, in the middle long. of the day. Yes, a family actually died. You will die. I think they're from Germany. You will die. Yeah, you'll die. Don't go hiking there. I mean, just imagine what it's like when you're like in the snow and the sun is beating down on it, like br- blinding your face. It's the same thing, but it's also hot. Yeah. So prior to the dropping of the bombs, they went through a testing phase. Um, they selected White Sands um, to test it. It's now known as the, the Trinity site, and White Sands actually just gained its um, national park status, I believe. Yeah, that just happened like a couple years ago. Yeah. So what they did was they built like replica towns and family homes. Didn't they have like dolls and like mannequins? Mannequins, yeah. That was actually um, a couple years back, maybe like 10 years ago, I actually dressed as a mannequin, a test mannequin from the site. So like I was wearing like 1950s, like, you know, cute housewife outfit and I was carrying a tray of burnt cookies and I had like melted skin all over me. Yeah, that was my costume. You're really morbid. I thought it was clever. It is clever. <laughs> yeah. It was just a mannequin. I have like a vision in my head of like this mannequin man with a fedora and a suit and like the the house making wife wearing like an apron and like a poofy skirt. That's basically what I was wearing. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. carrying around a tray of burnt cookies. <laughs> I even got real cookies and like burnt them. Yeah. It was pretty That's clever. cute. Um, Do you have pictures of that? I don't, actually. I'm so annoyed. I went to a party and everything, but nobody took a picture of me. It's so rude. Do you know me? I'm like famous in my own mind. <laughs> uh, I'm a guest on a podcast a couple of times. <laughs> a couple of times. <laughs> a handful of times. I'm basically a co-host. You know Mark Wahlberg? Yeah, I know him too. <laughs> no, you don't. <laughs> <laughs> no relation. <laughs> Wahlberg. <laughs> 
So um, the replica towns and the family homes, they were completely obliterated, obviously, during the test bombings. And upon reflecting, when he was observing those tests, years later, he reflected upon what he was feeling, what he observed, other scientists and their behavior after dropping this bomb um, at White Sands. And if you get a chance to find the, the YouTube videos of Oppenheimer in this reflection, it's really... It's really intense. Like, he kind of looks like he's going to cry. He looks really, really skinny and kind of just like a sad person. Mm. Maybe that's just my interpretation of it, but he just looked look like a downtrodden, much older gentleman who maybe is um, like juggling these roles that he played that sure. impacted our history. Seems like a heavy burden to carry. Yeah, no kidding. So they first tested the weapon on July 16th, 1945. And Oppenheimer later shared that some scientists were laughing. Some were crying. Wait, laughing? Yeah, laughing. I don't know. He doesn't further expand whether or not it's like this historic, you know, hysterical, giddy laughter, or is it like an uncomfortable laughter? Like, oh shit, we did this. Oh no, <laughs> you know, <laughs> like what are we gonna do? Holy fuck! Yeah, I didn't know that the the what are they called? The what's that mint candy? Andes? The <laughs> <laughs> The mint in the Coke was going to explode. Oh, the Mentos. The Mentos. <laughs> I just thought it would. we should try it. I didn't know it actually Well, worked. and if you watch the footage of what that looked like, it was, I mean, if you can imagine being somebody in the 50s, that had to have been insane sight to see that go off. Yeah, like a science kind of, technically, a science explosion. And they <laughs> did later on. I think Hashtag test- science <laughs> explosion. explosion. <laughs> I think they did later on, like, actually test on, like, live animals, like cows and sheep and stuff like that. And their skins being stripped off of their yeah, bones. Yeah, so like- understandably, the, the reactions were mixed. So, like I said, Oppenheimer said some people were crying, some people were laughing, some people were totally silent. For him, this is how he identified how he felt. He said, I remembered the line from the Hindu scripture, the Bhagavad Gita. Vishnu is trying to persuade the prince that he should do his duty. Which is to be in war. Okay. Because he was like, I I just want to clarify that part of it, because he doesn't talk about it in this quote, but the prince did not want to fight. He didn't want to kill anybody. And Vishnu is trying to convince him that it is his duty to do that. So go ahead. Sorry. No, good. Thank you. So Vishnu is trying to persuade the prince that he should do his duty. And to impress him, he takes out his multi-armed form and says, now I am become death, the destroyer of worlds. So I think Oppenheimer genuinely recognized that what he had participated, the creation that he had participated in, was going to have such a huge impact on the the world's future. And yeah. that largely that impact was going to mean death. Lots of death. Yeah. I mean, two, almost 225,000 dead in Japan alone. It's just, I can't imagine what he must have felt... I think it's similar to what the creator of Dynamite felt, you know, like you create this thing and it's so destructive. Right. You know, I I definitely believe that Oppenheimer was torn about about this creation, the atomic weapon. I think he recognized that there was a, a potential obliteration being weighed against the ongoing atrocities being waged by like the German and Japanese regimes. So yeah. here he is, um, a Jewish man recognizing that other Jews were being slaughtered in Germany, that Japan was an ally of Germany, that Japan had waged war on us with um, Pearl Harbor. And he was helping to create a weapon that was potentially going to annihilate all those potential enemies. It definitely sent a message, right? Like there was no doubt in the world's mind at that point that we were not fucking around. Right. But I guess my question for you, I might be jumping the gun here on on what you want to talk about, but... Why did New Mexico get involved in all of this? Did you already cover that? No, not yet. But thank you for bringing me back. Is that a good segue? No, that is a good segue. (laughs) So rewinding back to the creation of these weapons, we want to tether it back to New Mexico. And there was a reason why New Mexico was selected to develop the Manhattan Project. And that was, again, back to Oppenheimer. Oppenheimer, who was originally from New York, but he became familiar with New Mexico because he traveled here in his early teens, um, early 20s, um, to be treated for illness. And he completely fell in love with the mountains. He fell in love with the desert landscape. And he's and like, you know what, you guys? I just really want to fuck this shit up. I don't know that he said that. 
Um, but I definitely know that he liked that it was a very isolated territory. Yeah. Like it was, there weren't, there still aren't that many people around here. The same thing that makes it great for cults also makes it great for atomic bombs. There you go. So in 1941, even before the U.S. entered the war, President Roosevelt pushed for the U.S. to develop an atomic weapon. Um, so Lieutenant Leslie Groves um, happened to be a colleague of Oppenheimer. And so they were both tasked with finding a location to work on this project. And Oppenheimer immediately said, ding, ding, ding. Let's go check out New Mexico. So they ended up checking out Los Alamos, specifically an area called the Los Alamos Ranch School. So there was already some pre-existing buildings that they could build off of, pre-existing infrastructure like water and, you know, stuff like that. Mm-hmm. So it was it had all everything that they were looking for and it was also incredibly isolated, difficult to find, difficult to get to, which would help support the secretive nature of their work. So they really thought this is the place where we can work on this war ending weapon. At the same time, though, Stalin was completely aware, Stalin being the leader of Russia at the time, was completely aware that the U.S. was going to work on developing an atomic weapon. And he already had designated multiple sympathizers with Russia or active spies within Russia to get information from the U.S. efforts to develop the atomic weapon. Mm. So just as soon as U.S. started its efforts, identifying Los Alamos, doing all these things, Russia was right behind us and saying, we're going to get the goods and we're going to be able to beat them to this nuclear weapon. Which is like the precursor to the Cold War, right? Right, exactly. Okay. So we're I know, in this- I know a couple of things. <laughs> right. And, and if you think about it, the U.S. is in this weird... By the time we enter the war, we're in a weird relationship with Russia where mm-hmm. we're technically working together... Um, they are working to push back the Nazi forces, and we have landed in Europe to also push back the Nazi forces. But they're also developing this whole communist... Right. They were they were already, you know, identified as a communist regime, um, which whatever listeners feel has its own sentiments, and we don't want to get down that rabbit hole about, you know, causing communism, <laughs> yay or nay, but... That's exactly what a commie would say. <laughs> Uh, no answer. Uh, <laughs> so, Los Alamos saw the arrival of a low-level engineer named David Greenglass. And he came around the same um, time that a very trusted KGB spy and a very renowned scientist named Klaus Fuchs was also arrived in Los Alamos. What the Fuch? Yeah, what the Fuch? Fuchs spelled F-U-C-H-S. Did you ever in middle school, like, write... Or like high school FAQ, like fa Q. No, I never did that. I used to do that. I was I'm... too busy doing that S gang symbol. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like the connected. Yeah. So... <laughs> so maybe he was the one that wanted to fuke shit up. I think they all wanted to fuke shit up. <laughs> but Fuchs was definitely more high level. He was an actual physicist, whereas Greenglass was a little bit low level. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't say unsophisticated. He was a machinist, and he was very skilled at that. Like he was really good at making things. Yeah, but he wasn't necessarily he wasn't known a scientist, right? He wasn't like this, you know, brain power behind the he research. He wasn't writing the equations for fusion. <laughs> right. <laughs> he was making the components for the devices. So Fuchs had arrived in Los Alamos, but also at the same time. When we say like the KGB, I'm using it that as a, like a colloquial term. It wasn't technically the KGB at the time. The KGB came later on in like the 50s. Technically at the time, it was the KVD. That was kind of like their spy network. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think KGB is used colloquial now to like as an all expansive term for it's basically Russian, Russian spies. Spy, yeah. 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 Actually, Putin used to be a member of the KGB. Oh. And that's why they say he's so good at like manipulating world leaders Her into name doing. Is Lydia <laughs> He has all these skills that he learned from the KGB. I like how I'm the first person to throw you under the bus. (laughs) Every time. Every time. (laughs) Every time. I'll take you down with me. So technically it was the KVD, but, you know, going back. But hold on, hold on. I want to, I just want to take a minute. Yes. One minute. I feel like my listeners really need to understand that, that you have a crush on Vladimir Putin. I no longer have a crush because he's an awful person. He is just a really bad guy. Okay, you used to have a crush on I Vladimir did. Putin. I did. There I just found him attractive. It's something about like that small man big ego thing. I don't know. 
<laughs> I mean, you would assume I'd also have a crush on Tom Cruise, but I don't. It's something about like being a, I mean, I don't know. I can't explain it. There's no way to explain or justify my attraction <laughs> to Vladimir Putin. Granted, this was before his horrific facelift. Okay. Yes. Okay. So to my credit, this was before he completely butchered his face. <laughs> But also was still butchering people's civil rights. Butterface. Yes. Okay, sorry. Putin is a butterface. Back to the story. I mean, he, he, you know, rides on bears. Right. He hunts shirtless. Shirtless. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) You're going to get so much flack from your listeners who are like, Putin's awful. I know he's awful. I know he's the worst. I bet you we get like 700 letters of people like, oh my God, I feel the same way. Oh my God, I can finally say this in a safe place. (laughs) I love Vladimir Putin's. And again, it's I don't love him as a person. I just, there's something attractive about him. I felt that at the time. No and longer do that. Bye. Now I'm all about Captain America, Chris Evans. <laughs> That's my my new shtick right now. Okay. Okay. Now I look, see. Now you got me distracted. I'm sorry. I'm, I'm sorry. I'm thinking I'm sorry. about my Pinterest. <laughs> Your rabbit holes. <laughs> thinking my Pinterest rabbit holes where I'm <laughs> looking at images of Chris Evans and Scarlett Johansson wondering, like, did you ever get together? Um, <laughs> so the KGB, again, colloquial term, they were they knew that they didn't want to just hedge their bets on one person. They were being smart about things. Mm-hmm. So they're basically showering Los Alamos with as many intercepts that they could come up with. They could bring information back to Russia and help Russia's efforts to develop the A-bomb or develop nuclear weaponry before the U.S. gets to it first. Right. So Green Glass, in 1944, he was living in Los Alamos and his wife, Ruth, had actually settled in a boarding house in Albuquerque again in 1944. And he would come from Los Alamos to go and visit her. Two hours. Yeah. Yeah. And so they were staying, she was staying in this boarding house, not just because they were working on this spy plan, but (laughs) because they they did love each other and they wanted to try to be as close to each other as possible. So she was staying at a a boarding house and she was serving as the messenger. So Greenglass would come, bring the information, and then Ruth would pass it on to Julius Rosenberg. Now, Julius was married to David's sister, Ethel, Ethel Rosenberg. David's wife, Ruth, was staying at the boarding house in Albuquerque. And the boarding house, if you look at it, it's still here in Albuquerque. It's known as the Spy House. It's a bed and breakfast. You can actually go and stay there. We should go check it out. I would be into that. That'd be cool. It's really beautiful. People have like weddings there. Well, and like you said, it's on High Street. So that's like Victorian style, Mm -hmm. probably two-story house. Yep, exactly. Yep, so they have the same exact room where Ruth Greenglass and David Greenglass stayed in um, when he was shuttling the nuclear secrets to his wife to eventually pass on to his brother-in-law, Julius Rosenberg. Um, So Greenglass later became known as Codename Bumblebee. So if I go back to those (gasps) things, (laughs) what do these three things have in common? Trump, White Sands, Bumblebee. Now you're getting more of the picture. So he's Bumblebee. He is Bumblebee. So it was Transformers. <laughs> yes, he was the transformer all the time. He's a Camaro. He was a car. <laughs> he wasn't even human. <laughs> so Rosenberg black and yellow, actually black and yellow, black and yellow. Oh, I mean, <laughs> none of this happened by accident. Rosenberg was an active member of the Soviet Union's like support group. He was a communist party member. Right. And um in the US. He's an American though. Yeah. In Manhattan, right? Right. Okay. And so Julius Rosenberg David Greenglass's brother-in-law was an active member of the Soviet Union spy ring, and his handler slash mentor at the time encouraged him to recruit his brother-in-law, David Greenglass. Greenglass was an active soldier in the U.S. Army, but he and his wife Ruth had also previously joined the Youth Communist League prior to this happening. So all of them had interconnected relationships with the Communist Party and the Soviet identity. And the, and the climate at the time was not as like anti-communism as it became after all of this happened but it was starting to build up i think that like a lot of people in america were against communism oh, they absolutely. were against what it stood for and uh they felt that it was anti-american that it mm-hmm. was anti-freedom mm-hmm. and so for people to be like people were a part of the communist party before this and it was like just a thing right it you're, was a thing you're yeah just, you're just like i'm a democrat i'm a communist I'm a Republican, but then after this all kind of fleshes out, it starts to become more hostile towards. Absolutely, those yeah. The okay. communi- the 
communism party in the United States was more affiliated with the working class, working unions, and labor rights. Labor rights, exactly. And the espousings of like Emma Goldman, who was a huge labor rights activist who pushed for like the eight hour workday mm-hmm. and women getting access to birth control. Ending sweatshops. Ending sweatshops, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so it was very common actually for people to align themselves politically with what was previously identified as being like a communistic um, party. It was at this time, this World War II, and later on during the Cold War that we obviously began to develop all this very negative sentiment towards that concept. And it you know, to be fair, it wasn't helped by the Russia regime at the time. Sure. They were super brutal. It was a dictatorship, even though in the guise of like a communistic And they were realm. spying on us. They, yes, they were spying on us. I'm sure we were doing the same thing. Oh, we were 100% <laughs> spying on them too. So, you know, Greenglass and um, David Greenglass already had his connections and Julius Rosenberg was encouraged by his handler, by his connections, to really push for David Greenglass to share information that he was getting from Los Alamos. So we don't know what that conversation looked like. We don't know if there was any sort of coercion. All we know is that David Greenglass took information from Los Alamos and shared it with his wife and his brother-in-law, Julius. Greenglass, a.k.a. Bumblebee, um, continued to share information with Julius, and Julius's codename, just so you know, was codename Antenna. So the Soviet spy network didn't just end with those two. They didn't want, just want to hedge their bets there. They also targeted a a known, well-known scientist named Klaus Fuchs, like we talked about, and his codename was Charles. In his it's counterpart, C H A R L Z. Yes. Yeah. Sorry. No, it's okay. <laughs> I and thought that was weird. Tra- yeah. Maybe that's like the Russian version. I don't know. And his counterpart to transferring the information was Ted Hall, codenamed Millard. Millard? Millard. Millard. Uh, Is that like a bird? Uh, that's Mallard. Oh, Mallard. <laughs> Dwight. <laughs> so, I, you know, I watched a couple of documentaries about this whole thing, and Hall was allegedly a genius like he was super smart scientific mind he was young and there was one scientist that worked with him on this project and he said that he could do things like 90 percent faster than everybody else because he was just so smart wow so hall and fuchs's focus was primarily on the use of uranium or specifically u-235 however their dispatches for that research didn't get didn't end up reaching moscow until much later on. So we don't really know that their spy efforts had any huge impact because for some reason, their information didn't get to Moscow in a timely fashion. Also, Ted Hall was working with his former roommate, another courier for the Soviet Union, and his name was Seville Sachs. Mm-hmm. And Sachs would also shuttle secrets. So they would also have clandestine meetings at UNM's campus. Really? Yeah. Um, in in this book that I, I found, A Spy's Guide to Santa Fe and Albuquerque, They have photos of like the specific locations at UNM that they met at, locations specific to Santa Fe that the spies would meet at to share information. So it's really cool. So every time, you know, driving around campus, I always remember like, oh my God, these people met here. Like these people were here physically standing here sharing nuclear secrets. It's so crazy. That's insane. And also like the way that they distributed this information back to Russia was pretty crazy like i i saw this whole thing about the uh telegraph and the telegram uh so they would just send these wire cables through western union back then uh it wasn't just for money come pick up your money it wasn't just for money (laughs) western union me no send me some money on western union hurry up uh no but they they actually would send these secrets through a coded message and the code itself was so complicated like i got really confused watching and like learning about how they did the code but they said that even today with supercomputers the way that they are they're still basically unbreakable unless you have the key and so there was one guy in particular who was working in los alamos to decode all of these cables and he figured it out oh wow so he actually learned all of these code names. He knew he's the one that discovered Charles and Bumblebee and all these other things. He's a very smart guy. He was like multilingual. That's the only reason he was able to decode this. Wow. He, he knew Russian. He knew English. He knew all these other languages. And he figured out the code. He cracked the code and was able to determine that we were actually losing all of these secrets, all of these top secret things that were going on with this project 
were just going right to Russia. Wow. It was amazing. That's so crazy. I wish I was that smart. I Not know. to say I'd be a spy, but I would just rub it in people's faces. Fun fact, Los Alamos actually has the highest percentage of master's level educated people in the state. Boom. Roasted. Boom. What do you got? You're welcome. How do you like them apples? They're real smart. Boston. I don't Nerds. know why I chose Boston. <laughs> because so, of MIT? Yeah, um, I don't know. I was thinking of Google hunting. <laughs> You're thinking of Mark Wahlberg again? <laughs> no, Matt Damon. <laughs> I don't think Mark Wahlberg's in Goodwill hunting. No, you said Boston. Oh, yeah. But it does. It takes place at, in Boston, doesn't okay, it? <laughs> Harvard. 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 <laughs> so Green Glass was... Eventually apprehended in 1950 when his transgressions were discovered. World War II was over, mm-hmm. uh, but the U.S. was entering a new phase, a new war, and that was a Cold War with Russia. So we also know this as the Red Scare. So Russia was enemy numero uno, number one. Sorry, Putin. Yep. Putin. So Green Glass quickly dimed out Julius and his sister Ethel in order to secure protection for he and his wife. Wait, what did you just say? Dimed out. What is that? Ratted out. You're getting mad at me because I'm using this expression, dimed out. It doesn't make any sense. I use the phrase dimed out. It means ratted out. You're the only one. You're saying it's not a New Mexico thing. That's fine. I've always said dimed out. Yeah. He sold them out. He sold them out. He dimed them out. He sold them out. Hopefully your listeners will support me. In the use of the expression dimed out. They won't. They support me. Uh, 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 okay. <laughs> <laughs> so, obviously, in order to protect himself and his wife, led to the fall of Ethel and Julius Rosenberg. I mean, he basically just bitched out. Oh, yeah. I mean, he totally threw them under the bus. It's really unclear if he ever regretted this. Like, you can find some old photos of when he's leaving the court after testifying against his sister and his brother-in-law. He doesn't look distraught or upset. Right. Um, I think he ended up living under an assumed name... And died later on. I think uh, one researcher found out where he lived and made contact with him, but he didn't share any sort of reflection on any sort of sense of guilt or or anything. So it's. I think it would be complicated to unravel what that dynamic looked like, especially when it came to who bore the majority of the responsibility. Were, was everybody equal partners or what? But who bore the majority of the consequences? Right. That's the real question. Yeah. So, yeah. so going into that point, um, let's talk about Ethel and Julius's prosecution. So Roy Cohen became a lead prosecutor of the Rosenberg trial. They were eventually executed in 1954 after being found guilty of espionage. They died by electric chair. Okay. Sadly, they left behind two young children. And also, there's a lot of, like, I, I think that your point here and my point is that there are a lot of other people involved that did not suffer even close to that level of consequence. And the level of involvement, I think, is questionable, especially on Ethel's part. I know that her son is really advocating for justice for her, claiming that she was wrongfully accused. I know that she was Communist Party American, which was a thing back then. But there's a lot of question about how involved she was directly, as opposed to her brother's wife. Right. Who was... Ruth Greenclass. Was very involved, and admittedly so. And not just that, but like Hall and Fuchs and all these other people, they didn't get electrocuted. Right. No, that's a really good point. For some reason, Cohen had his eyes laser pointed towards ethel and julius he was gonna make an example out of them right again if you get a chance to check out angels in america there's roy cohen's character is played by al pacino ethel rosenberg is played by meryl streep and he's kind of suffering she's a national treasure (laughs) national (laughs) National treasure and and her spirit comes to talk to him and it's really profound it's really good acting um, you know, just a little bit of a segue if you get to cha- get a chance to check it out. So Roy Cohen was infamous in his own right. So he was really infamous for his role during the McCarthy era, the Red Scare. McCarthyism. McCarthyism. There were hearings after hearings where people were being targeted and accused of being communists, specifically in Hollywood, actors, actresses. You know, probably what you would call like more liberal-minded today were mm-hmm. being blacklisted and labeled as communists. Once you were blacklisted, that basically meant you 
could never work again. You were yeah. labeled as a communist sympathizer or an active member of the party, and you didn't deserve to work again. And the big big people spearing that efforts were Roy Cohn and um, Senator McCarthy. From Wisconsin. <laughs> Wisconsin. Wisconsin. Roy Cohn was from New York. It's also suspected that Roy Cohn was a closeted homosexual. He later went on to advise Donald Trump, our current president, Rupert Murdoch, the Right, Fox News. Mm -hmm. And he was also known as a fixer among the political realms. He was also known to be incredibly highly unethical. Later on in his life, he ended up being disbarred, and he later succumbed to complications associated with AIDS. However, he did his best to hide this illness. And so again, if you have a chance to check out Angels in America, please check it out. It really um, dissects more of that dichotomy that he posed where he probably was a gay man, but um, his outward presentation, the way he treated other people was really horrific and the epitome of hypocrisy. Ethel and Julius Rosenberg felt the brunt of whatever aggression he for some reason held against people who identified as communists. And and that's not to say that they were innocent, because I think that definitely Julius was involved in this whole scandal of recruiting his brother-in-law and connecting the dots for some of these people that were working at the Manhattan Project. Mm-hmm. He definitely was not innocent. But it just, for me, the contrast of the level of punishment that they received versus the people who were key and instrumental in passing some of these secrets really getting away scot-free. And there was one documentary I watched where they interviewed Hall's wife and she still, she was still alive back then. I don't know if she is now, but she said that he had a moment where he felt so guilty about what was happening to the Rosenbergs that he was determined to go turn himself in and like confess to everything that he had done. And she convinced him not to. Oh, wow. But he wanted to save at the most, he wanted to save Ethel's life because he felt like she was being treated unfairly. Yeah. And there was a huge backlash before all the McCarthyism and everything started to really take shape and grip the nation. There was a big backlash of public sentiment that felt like Ethel should not have been executed. Mm -hmm. And they were protesting in the streets and all of these things were happening to stop that from, from occurring. And, and there were even several petitions to the president himself at the time to, to turn back the execution order and he refused to do it. So it's just, I think it's interesting. And I'm not saying that they were innocent because I don't think that they were, but I do think that they were used as scapegoats. Yeah, definitely. By, by Cohen and, and some of these other people to send a message that this wouldn't be tolerated anymore. Right. I think you're absolutely right. And I there was also a lot of anti-Semitism associated with scapegoating the Rosenbergs. Like Eric said, their level of culpability was probably less than other people. But it's possible that because those other people were, you know, they were wasps, basically, mm-hmm. or it was easier to point the finger and blame um, this Jewish couple for this, you know, this subversion sure um and of course that's completely ironic coming from roy cohen who himself was also jewish but for some reason he had laser focus on this couple and making his name was very important to him making his name known and pushing the agenda of joseph mccarthy Mm. so after you know the execution of the rosenbergs there was still always this general distrust of anybody who affiliated with concepts of communism sure. or or Russia up to um, Ronald Reagan. I mean, well, yeah, he was I, really well known for not trusting Russians. I think the Cold War carried on into our childhoods. Yep. And I remember some of it. Mm-hmm. I don't remember all of it, but I remember some of the aggression towards Russia, towards some of these other countries uh, that was still going on. Not that it was undeserved. but <laughs> No, absolutely. I mean, they definitely were were fucked up. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. Um, um, so ultimately, a lot of people wondered if Oppenheimer had any uh, experience himself in the trading or sharing of secrets. I think a, a light of doubt was also cast on him again, because he was a Jewish scientist. Mm-hmm. And again, going back to the anti-Semitic nature that was common in the US. But and of just cor- in that time period. In yeah, general. absolutely. At the time, people definitely had their doubts. It wasn't until a disclosure from US resources and, U- and documents from the USSR that we learned that Oppenheimer also had a code, na- code name, 
delegated by the USSR, and his code name was Chester. But it's been it was clearly confirmed by the USSR documents that he himself did not participate in sharing information, even though he had been actively recruited, and even his own mistress was a car technically a card carrying member of the Communist Party. But he himself never that we know so far never shared any nuclear secrets with Russia. It does seem that the whole McCarthyism and and all of that really did succeed in squashing the Communist Party in the United States. It, right. It, the level of influence and and notoriety that they had mm-hmm. in the forties and the thirties is non basically non existent at right. this point. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's that's an interesting to think about yeah they got what they wanted i guess i mean mccarthy era i guess you can argue was successful and what their motivation was and and again whatever people's political leanings are it's just history history. um but you know it is interesting that there was this complete annihilation potentially of an idea a political idea and granted there were these perversions with trying to steal secrets but i don't doubt that the united states was also participating in espionage efforts throughout the world that's exactly what a communist would say yep yep car carrying (laughs) member (laughs) i do like the name ethel i do too yeah and i i saw like photos of them and you know, I, I feel bad for her kids. Mm-hmm. I think that they had a really rough go because they were put into essentially foster care and then adopted. Mm-hmm. They even changed their names yep. to be their adoptive parents' names. Mm-hmm. And I think that was probably because they were being attacked. Yeah, or followed. They were you kicked know, out of the New Jersey school system. It's crazy. Yeah, their sons are still alive. Mm-hmm. I don't know that they still give interviews, but they, from what I've read, they still... Like Eric said, they still believe that their mom's participation was minimal at best. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a really sad story. It is sad. And a horrible story. I mean, just the entire thing is crazy. And and the fact that there's so many ties to New Mexico, mm-hmm. it just blows my mind a little bit because I was not even aware of that. So I want to thank you for teaching me something you're welcome and you know what we talked about earlier was it's the u.s obviously beat russia in terms Mm -hmm. of developing the weapon although the information that was inevitably given to russia did expedite their process yeah it saved them about three or four years i think in developing their own yeah um, which led to a bunch of other things yeah you know the arms race and Mm -hmm. all that fun stuff not fun not fun but it's still interesting to highlight the role that New Mexico played during World War II, during the development of weapons. And if we can leave you with anything, stay safe and check out the White Sands. Yeah, character. check out White Sands. Check out the Valles Caldera. Um, El Camino. El Camino. El Navador Lounge. Fries. So good. Yeah. Well, Lydia, thank you again for joining me. Thank you for having me here, Eric. What's the name of the book that you read? The book is called A Spy's Guide to Santa Fe and Albuquerque by E.B. Held, and he identifies himself as a former intelligence officer of the U.S. government. Mm. Is he a New Mexican? He was stationed here in New Mexico for a time, which led to his research, but he doesn't currently live here. Okay, that's cool. Well, we'll have to check that out. And anything else that you want to say to our listeners? Thank you for being interested in Eric's podcast. Stay safe. (laughs) Wash your hands. Don't drink bleach. Wow. Uh, That's more than I could say. So, yeah, stay safe, New Mexico. Thanks again for listening to True Consequences. Follow us on social media. On Instagram and Facebook at True Consequences Pod. And on Twitter at True Cons Pod. True Consequences is hosted, written, and produced by me, your host, Eric Carter-Landine. Thanks for listening, and stay safe, New Mexico.